What famous holiday song was originally called Smile and Show Your Dimple? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, okay. And what is Cupid's name in Greek mythology? Oh, some Valentine's questions you and are. other things coming up today <laughs> on The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, spring is here, and we got Valentine's Day and Easter coming up, Marsh. I have a question that relates to an Easter song, okay? What holiday song was originally titled Smile and Show Your Dimple? Smile and show you. That's not smile and the world is laughing. Nope. Smile. No. Okay, uh, I don't. I would say Easter song. Yes, Easter parade. Yes, it's <laughs> the only Easter song. That's I, it, Irving Berlin. In your Easter, Easter bonnet. bonnet. Well, originally it started out, smile and show your dimple. Really? Yeah. So the phrases have the same rhythm, and he wrote mm-hmm. that song during the uh, First World War, but it didn't show up until the 1930s show as thousands cheered when it was retitled Easter Parade. And here's an ironic note: Irving Berlin was born Israel Berlin in Tulum, Russia. He's a Jewish songwriter who has written most of the popular songs associated with two major Christian holidays. Yeah, yeah I've always <laughs> thought that was amusing. White Christmas and uh, Easter Parade for uh, Easter. Okay. Funny. So, Bob, what is Cupid's name? It's not Betty. In Greek mythology. Why would I think it was Betty? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Cupid. Yeah, are we looking for first or last names? It's Greek mythology, Bob. Oh, I see. It's a singular name. So it's not Cupid. It's not like Q. Hey, Q, come on over. (laughs) No, this is a name you've heard of. Pid. Okay, (laughs) no, I don't. I have no idea. It's Eros. Oh, Eros, E-R-O-S. Yes. Okay. And FYI, Cupid. I also thought Cupid was a girl, didn't you? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. I did. Cupid's a little cherub, right? Yeah. Little boy who is, uh, you know, shooting arrows in people's hearts. How did you know it was a boy? It always looked like a boy. Cupid is the son of Venus. Of course. So, <laughs> just keeping up on your... So, Eros was the original name, E-R-O-S, which that is, is love. Uh-huh. love. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, Marsha, we had the Super Bowl, and of course, we all watched these commercials. Some of them were great, some of them not so great. How much did it cost to run a spot, 30-second spot on the Super Seven Bowl Seven million dollars. That's exactly right. Yes. Hoorah! $7 million for 30 seconds of airtime. All right, now, how much did it cost to run a spot on the first Super Bowl in 1967? For how long? Same thing, 30 30 seconds. seconds? $150. 42,000. Oh, okay. (laughs) So it's going from 42,000 to 7 million in what, 55 years? Well, I heard a marketing guy on the radio talking about it, and you really do get a lot of bang for your seven million because of the downloads and the uh, and all the, the extensions of extensions. The seeing that spot in other contexts. Yeah, yeah. Yep. If you can afford it, 
it might be worth it, but not if people don't connect your product with your commercial. You know, uh, one of our favorite people, Ed Allen, who was my boss at Rockwell, he was the guy who came up with that idea of running a spot once and then extending it. He did that for Masterlock. It was a famous shot of the uh, oh, gun shot, shooting the uh, yeah. Masterlock padlock. Yeah. Yeah, they had done that spot before, but he came up with the idea of let's run it in the Super Bowl and then let's merchandise the heck out of it by putting it on brochures and putting it in you know, different places we can show this spot. So, yeah, very famous thing. I was thinking about running a little podcast commercial on the Super Bowl this year, but... Uh, yeah, and well, I was thinking, how would you, you know, make an impression? It'd just be a 10-second spot and say, go to the off-ramp, that show. You know, I'd just say it 10 times over and stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would have gotten us... Well, how, I bet a lot of people uh, would Yes, go. people would go, but how much would it cost to do that, Marcia? Well, let's see, one-third of $7 million, that's going to cost a lot of money. Maybe. We'll see. Okay. You know, it's also the end, obviously, of the, uh, the playing season for professional football. So I have some questions on how some of the NFL teams got their names. I'm going to ask you about the Arizona Cardinals. Okay. How did they get their name? Well, isn't the Cardinal the state bird of Arizona? Well, I don't think it is, but that, you know, remember the franchise began years ago in 1898. It was in St. Louis in 1960, but it was in Chicago first, and that's where they were called the Cardinals originally, in 1898. All right, now tell me why they got the name the Cardinals. In Very Chicago? simple. In Chicago, yeah. Okay, because... Uh, this is a team. It was a new team. Not a lot of money. All right, I don't know. They purchased used, faded maroon oh. <laughs> jerseys from the University of Chicago in 1901. And Chris O'Brien, who was the team owner, he called the color Cardinal Red, and the nickname was born. And that's how the Arizona Cardinals got their name way back in 1898. Okay. So the Arizona Cardinals started in Chicago in 1898, moved to St. Louis in 1960, moved to Arizona in 1988. There's still a Cardinals team in St. Louis, but it's a baseball team. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Bob, you and your son, Benjamin, mm-hmm. our son, Benjamin. My uh, son, yes, my son. <laughs> like the <laughs> like the Beach Boys, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know their two previous names before they settled on Beach Boys? I know they wanted to call themselves the Pendletons. That's correct. Because they thought they would get a great deal on shirts. Yeah, did or, they really? Yeah, yeah, that was the idea. And I loved Pendletons. But okay, but... I don't know what the was, other name was. There was another one. It was called Carl and the Passions. Oh, Carl and the Passions. And they actually used that name on one of their albums did later. They? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. All right, I have a music question for you. Okay. How were the early New York Philharmonic concerts different for musicians of a hundred and so years ago than they are for musicians today? Acoustics? Maybe different concert halls, but that's not it. There was a difference in the way things were performed Did in they the 19th stand up? century. Yes, that's right. All the musicians stood up when they performed. Oh, that would get tiring. Everybody except the cellist, that is. <laughs> that was the style of the Leipzig Gewandhaus concerts from Germany. And from the first Philharmonic concert in 1842 until 1885, for 43 years, that's how they were performed, with all the musicians standing up for the concert. Huh, I don't think I've even seen a picture of that. Do you? No. Uh-uh. Yeah. Okay, Bob, wordplay. Why do we call the act of not eating a fasting? I'm going to fast today. Now, that's a good question. Isn't it, though? Why am I going to fast? Why would fast mean? So did fast mean being asleep, or did it mean not eating? I'm not telling. Okay, I don't know the answer. What's the <laughs> okay. answer? Okay, the original meaning 
of the word fast was to hold firmly, as in she held fast to her principles. Okay. And as a practice of not eating is all about firm self-control. So fasting today can take many forms from not eating for dieting or cleansing, or you can use it as a political protest. You know, I'm going to fast. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. It all comes down to the original meaning of self-control and mentally strong. So fast, hold fast. Yeah, that is the expression you're earning. Okay, I've got a question for you. This is about a river, all right? All right. What river in the world? runs through more national capitals than any other. Oh, were we ever on it? Yes, we were. Well, then it was the Danube. Yeah, doggone it. <laughs> yeah, it could have been the Rhine or the Danube or it could have been the, the Congo River. That goes through multiple countries. Yeah. But yeah, uh, the Danube, which starts in the Black Forest Mountains of Germany, it travels through nine countries. Mm. These are the world capitals it goes through. Belgrade, Vienna, Brastilava, and Budapest, Those were all built on the banks of the Great River, but it goes through these countries, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Slovakia, Croatia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, and Ukraine. So, I don't know, thought that was interesting. It is. I knew the answer. You never congratulate me when I get one right. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, Marsha. Thank you. All right. Uh, Here's some more Valentine trivia from Parade Magazine. Okay. Okay. You got Eros. We know that one. Mm -hmm. So in the Victorian era, apparently there were a fair amount of mean-spirited Valentines. No. Yeah. No, not in the Victorian era. I thought everybody was polite back then. I thought so. And some were comically mocking. Oh, my God. Goodness. And these cards had a special name. These you know? people should have been on social media today. <laughs> that, yes. Oh, they would is, have had a field day, wouldn't they? This is early social media. Wow. Exactly. Okay. You're the only person who knew you'd been dissed. That's the difference. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And <laughs> okay. the person who did it. They were called, this is funny, Vinegar Valentines. Yeah, I got Vinegar Valentines. And the other one, I thought this was just for cheap storybooks, but they also called them Penny Dreadfuls. Oh. Uh, you know, you've heard of that. Yes. And those were also for the mean-spirited or comically mocking Valentines. So these are cards people would get. They would yeah. send to somebody would yeah. comically mock them. Yeah, Pretty mean. It is. All right, back to music. I got another question here. What famous ethnic song that you've no doubt heard was written about a cockroach? (laughs) Did Barry Manlow write it? No, he did not. (laughs) He would write about his dog and other things. Okay. A cockroach. uh, Don't know. Starts with a la, la. La Boheme. La Cucaracha. (laughs) Oh, of course. Yeah, that song's about a cockroach. It was written by a Spanish composer. It refers to the cockroach as being out in the sun too long, and unfortunately for grape and raisin producers, one line translates, so he's just another raisin. La Cucaracha. La Cucaracha. La Cucaracha. I never really thought about it, but yes, okay. And going along with the Irving Berlin thing, did you know that the famous song Old Man River that's got a Negro spiritual sound to it? was actually written by a pair of white Jewish songwriters, Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern. Uh, Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know when the oldest recorded Valentine was written? Just give me a ballpark. Oh, I bet that goes back to ancient times, probably to, let's see. Of course, are we referring to St. Valentine's Day? So are we talking about the modern era, like since the Middle Ages sometime? Uh 1400s, maybe Uh 1500s? 1527. Well, not bad. 1415. 1415. Uh, yep. It wow. was written as a poem by the Duke of Orleans. Okay. When he was 21, he wrote it to his wife when he was held captive in the Tower of London. 
What was the nature of his verse? What was it? Do we know? No. Oh, okay. Well, geez, I didn't it's know. It's kind of an gonna... empty, empty. We don't know what he did. We don't know. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's move on. Geez, sorry uh, to disappoint, Bob. <laughs> that was disappointing, Marsha. I have to say that if I'm going to compliment you each time, it's been wonderful. Okay. All right, here's a more NFL teams. How did the Baltimore Ravens get their name? Baltimore Ravens. Hark, nevermore. Okay. The Ravens. They were birds landing in the field all the time. Why did they call them the Baltimore Ravens, Marsh? Because in their football field, the Ravens were landing all the time and just eating up the seed and the... So disappointing. (laughs) Okay. No, it's a reference to Edgar Allan Poe. He was from Baltimore. Oh, okay. Yeah, and of course he did the Raven. So I got it right in the beginning. I said, hark, the Ravens never You never said it was the poem, though. No, I didn't. Or the the poet. I didn't know he was from there. Edgar Allan Poe died in Baltimore. I'll be darned. And there was a poll of the Baltimore Sun. They did a contest, and of the 33,000 voters, 21,000 picked Ravens as the name of the team. All right. 50 million roses are sent out each year for Valentine's Day. 50 Jeez, million. Wow. 35 million heart-shaped boxes of chocolate get bought every year. Wow. Why not heart-shaped boxes of jelly bellies or something? No, it's chocolates, yeah, Marsh. Chocolates are associated with Valentine's Day. Why? Jelly bellies are not. I know. It's just something perverse. I would oh, get a dear. kick out. And please, typically, please read this. And here's the sad part. Typically, 9 million people each year buy Valentine's for their pets. <laughs> oh, that, that, is, that is sad. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's just amazing. You okay. want to take a break? No, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> the Atlanta Falcons, how did they oh, get boy, their name? Oh, boy, you are full of the Falcons. What are some of the other names? There were 1,300 people. They suggested more than 500 names. That's when the uh, insurance executive Rankin-Smith, he bought the team at a local radio station, sponsored a contest. What were some of the other names people thought might be good for the Atlanta team? You tell me. The Peaches? Yeah. That doesn't have but a strong that, it, name for that's football. That's not a real strong, <laughs> scary name. Hey, the Peaches are coming. The Vibrants, the Lancers, that would have been good. Confederates, you could see that. Firebirds and Thrashers. Yeah. But school teacher Julia Ellett of Griffin, Georgia, was declared the winner for the reason she provided. She goes, the Falcon is proud and dignified with great courage and fight. It never drops its prey. It is deadly and has great sporting tradition. And for that, she won four season tickets for three years and a football autographed by the entire 1966 team. Okay, question. Mm -hmm. Why do we call a quarter two bits? Two bits. Shaving a haircut, two bits. That was something I remember my grandpa used to always say. Did you ever use that term growing up? No, no. Really, I did. Two bits? Yeah. Two bits? I heard it at the drugstore the other day. You got two bits on you, yeah? I didn't know people still talked about that. Oh, yes. Okay. No, I didn't. And I don't know the answer. Why are two bits? Well, you'll like the answer because it's curiously interesting. Okay. European settlers brought their money with them to America and coins made of precious metal were accepted everywhere. The Spanish peso was divided into eight silver coins, which the English called bits or pieces of pieces eight. Pieces of eight, yeah, That's right. right. So two bits was a quarter of a Spanish dollar. And even though when money was finally minted in the New World, and although a dollar's coinage was divided by ten, the expression two bits continued to mean a quarter of a dollar. Wow, that goes a long way back then. It does. I had no idea. I thought you'd be amazed. I am amused. amazed and amused by that. <laughs> yes. 
And now I think it's time for a break. Okay. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. Okay, back again here on The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. I have a question about a pop group. It's a duo. And their original name was based on a famous movie. Not the title of the movie, but something about the movie. And they debuted in uh, the (laughs) mid-60s. Caesar and Cleopatra was their original name. Oh, really? Yeah. Who were they? Jan and Dean? No. No, was it it a guy and a girl? Yeah. It was, uh, wasn't Peter, Paul, and Mary, because one too many guys. No. Oh, it wasn't Sonny and Cher? Yes, it was. (laughs) Sonny and Cher. Very good, Marcia. Congratulations, Marcia. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, their first professional appearance was under the name of Caesar and Cleopatra. So was their first recording, The Letter. But the movie they were trying to capitalize on was, of course... Cleopatra, starring uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Yeah, okay. Well, I didn't know that. And she had certainly the look of a Cleopatra with her hair and everything. Okay. You love those digital storage devices, Bob? Yes, Uh, flash memory. What size are those, uh, the ones you're buying now? One terabyte. One terabyte? Yeah. Yeah, they're big, and you always marble. Oh, look at this. So what do you think is the storage capacity of the human brain? In terms of terabytes? Yeah, terabytes. Really? Yeah. I'll say 200 terabytes. Oh, no, no, no. No? No. One terabyte? No. 300 terabytes. <laughs> I don't know. what. Four. Four terabytes. Four terabytes. So our, our brains contain about four terabytes of memory. They can, yes. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. One more music question for you. Okay. This fellow is still singing. His name was Dominic Benedetto. He got his current singing name from the man who discovered him, who was a famous comedian. Dominic Benedetto. He sings with Lady Gaga. He sings with Lady Gaga? Yeah. Dominic Benedetto. (laughs) Jeez, you don't even know who I'm talking about. No. Tony Bennett. Oh, of course. (laughs) And I've seen him sing with uh, Gaga. Who discovered Tony Bennett? Who? Bob Hope. Oh, really? Yeah, Tony Bennett started his career as a singing waiter at Ricardo's Restaurant in Astoria, Queens, New York. His real name, Anthony Dominic Benedetto, and Bob Hope discovered him in 1949 and suggested he use the name Tony Bennett. He yeah. can still belt it out, too. He's, you know, he's got Alzheimer's and all that, but... Still what, sings, though. If he, you put him in front of a microphone in a, on a stage, he suddenly starts singing like no tomorrow and i think it's fascinating i was showing some of our friends last night our old record player downstairs that very old one my folks had you Uh know and i have a 78 of tony bennett oh really one of his first hit records and here's a guy who's going all the way up through cassette tapes cds the streaming era still selling records in his 90s from the 78 on it's hard to believe isn't it that would have been good question who went from 78 the streaming his music. Yeah. And the answer is, Bob? <laughs> Anthony Dominic Benedetto. <laughs> That's who it is. <laughs> All right. You know, there's no substitute for having a microchip put in your dog for ID purposes. But according to Hello Bark, what is the single unique feature of a dog to ID them? You know, like fingerprints, but it's not a prop print. What is it as opposed to... A fingerprint. Does it have something to do with their drool? Is it something to do with that? No. It's not bark. No. Not their bark, not their bite. No. Not their teeth. No. Not their nose? Yes. Okay. Yes. Each dog has a unique nose print. 
<laughs> and apparently, it's a thing out there. Apparently, people even wear their dog's nose print on a necklace pendant around their neck. I've yeah. never heard of no, that. No, me either. That's strange. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little strange. Yes, yes. What is that? That's an interesting design. It's my dog's nose print. Yeah. <laughs> it's on to the next person at the party. <laughs> That's right. All right. Moving along. Okay, Marcia, now here's a question for you. What is the world's only international underwater automobile tunnel? Going to give you four choices here. The Channel Channel between England and France. Uh-huh. The Gothard Base Tunnel in Switzerland. The Detroit-Windsor Tunnel between the U.S. and Canada, or the Lairdal Tunnel in Scandinavia. Again, the world's only international underwater automobile tunnel. Well, the tunnel, that's for a railroad. I don't know if they have a side where cars You're right. Go. That's for railroad, just tunnel, exactly. Yeah. And so I would say... So that rules out the Channel Tunnel. How about the Gothard Base Tunnel in Switzerland? Yeah, I'll go with that. No. <laughs> How about the... Lairdal Tunnel in Norway. No. You know why those are not even good candidates here, Marcia? They don't go underwater. They go under mountains. The question was, what's the world's only international underwater automobile tunnel? Which leaves the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel between the U.S. and Canada. And that's it. Really? That's the longest underwater tunnel Detroit? with international traffic between Canada and the United States. How far is it? From Detroit to Windsor. It's a little less than a mile. And really? that was Yeah, that was completed more than 90 years ago in 1930, and it remains the world's only international underwater tunnel, specifically for automobiles. In one mile? It's the Detroit River. You're going under the Detroit River. Yeah. Yeah. That was not the first underwater tunnel between Detroit and Windsor, though. They, there were two railroad tunnels that were built in the 90s, the 1890s, the St. Clair Tunnel and the Michigan Central Railway Tunnel. The St. Clair Tunnel was built in 1891, and the Michigan Central was built in 1910. So they had two tunnels underneath that river hmm. before that, and then in 1930 they decided, let's build it for automobiles. Okay. So it's a major engineering feat. I'd like to do that sometime. Okay. I have a multiple choice for you. Okay. An instrument at the University of Arizona, developed by Dr. Frank Lowe, is designed for taking the temperature readings on planets, distant planets. Okay. It's so sensitive that it can detect a lit cigarette from how far away? One, 10 miles. Two, 1,000 miles. Oh, God. Or 10,000 miles. Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't even think it'd be 1,000 miles, but it's got to be in the middle there somewhere. I'll say 1,000 miles. That's a good guess. 10,000 miles. What? Now, what a is it again? cigarette. What is it again that can uh, detect that? It's a temperature reading. Uh, he developed this instrument at the University of Arizona. It's wow. A, that's hard to fathom, isn't it? It is just hard 10, to believe. 10,000 miles away. Yeah. How long do you think is the longest married couple? How long is the longest married how, couple? How long have they been married? Oh, okay. No, I, I <laughs> to be more specific. thought perhaps we were talking about Tom Thumb and his wife. They were <laughs> the that? shortest married yeah. couple. Yeah. Who were the longest Long- married couple? <laughs> okay, the longest time. Yeah. I would say 70 years would be a long time. Okay, let's say 75 years. Yeah, no. 86. Wow. Robert and Dorothy Kohler. And they're still counting. They're still going. 86 years. No kidding. How old are they, does it say? They're both over 100. Holy cow. Isn't that something? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's that's under my Valentine trivia. Okay, and here's just some did you know. 
Okay. Did you know that the Sunday edition of the New York Times, mm -hmm. which we get, mm -hmm. has more information in it than a typical adult was exposed to in an entire lifetime 100 years ago? Really? Yeah. I should slow down and not go through those sections. <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm thumbing through those sections too quickly. Isn't that something? That is you, amazing. Yes, yeah. All right. What NFL team was the first expansion franchise and the first pro sports team to feature the state's name, not the city? The Florida Marlins? No. Before that. Uh the Minnesota Vikings. Oh. Minnesota Vikings. Them I know. Yeah, that was in 1961 when they joined the NFL, and that was the first time a pro team had ever chosen a state's name instead of the city's name. And how did the New York Jets get their name? Well, let's see. It was uh, New York Jets. Where, are they near the airfield? That's it. When they knew they were going to play in Shea Stadium, which is close to LaGuardia Airport, the name the New York Jets was chosen to reflect the modern approach of uh, the team in 1963. It's and kind they, of a cool name. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool, too. Yeah, it is. It's a, it, hey, what are the Jets doing today? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. I'm going to finish up with uh, two famous last words. James Dean, how, what, was he in his 20s, right? Oh, uh, yes. That was that must have been something he said to somebody before he got in the spider and took off in the car. Did I think he, he was, die on the oh, spot? Oh, he died in the Instantly? horrible car crash. Yeah. Well, the last thing he said was, my fun days are over. And he was right. Yeah. Don't get in that's, that car. He was always driving fast. Wow. That's, that's sort of sad. But here's Humphrey Bogart. His last words were, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> never should have switched from scotch to martinis. <laughs> You know, sometimes I feel I'm just here to set up your <laughs> your <laughs> I'm voices. So, I'm sorry. Your voice catalog. No, I like to hear you. You don't do them enough. Okay, here's a winter question. All right. Can you smell snow? No. Yes, the answer is yes. Snow has an aroma, and it's getting stronger. Snow's smell reflects impurities in the air. And as the atmosphere changes, the smell of snow is changing. But it also is local. Snowflakes in Wisconsin smell different from snow in Sweden. And some people can actually smell snow coming like they can smell rain coming. Very interesting. So, I th yeah, I thought that was kind of nice. I like snow. You like I snow? I wish we had more of it. You wish we had more of it. Yeah, you don't get out and shovel or blow it. That's the reason you think it's so nice. Oh, it's so pretty. Oh, I look at it. I look at it, and it's work piling up is Say what it is. Say goodbye, Gracie. All right, one more. Where is the world's only frozen hairdo competition, Marcia? I'll give you the names of the countries, That's okay? That's funny. <laughs> Sweden. Russia, mm. Canada, mm. Norway, or Iceland? You say Sweden? Wrong. <laughs> no, it's one of those four. Okay, I'll say Canada. It is. It is. It's in the Yukon Territory. Maybe there's not a lot to do up there. Yes. I don't know. It's the world's only frozen hairdo competition, and it's not as cold as you think. It's held at the uh, Takani River Hot Springs, which provide 116-degree Fahrenheit temperatures to soak in while you work on your frozen dew. But the trick is to right. dunk your head in the hot water and shape it in the cold air outside the pool as quickly as you can, and then the above-water air temperature which can go as low as 40 below zero, lets you mold your rapidly freezing hair into your best and most outrageous shape possible. Well, that's kind of cool. Have you ever had... Uh... Hundreds of people participate in this, and they win as much as $2,000 in Canadian money. Well, I didn't, I didn't ever think about shaping it. I've had frozen hair. Have you? Yes, but I never thought of making a do out of it. No, I, a I didn't either. frozen hairdo. Yeah, I used to go to a, 
when I worked in Marquette, Michigan, I'd take a shower and go to the newsroom in the morning, and it was always so cold. My hair would freeze, and I looked pretty weird when that I got froze there. on the way to the newsroom. Yeah. Wow, how cold was it there? Very cold. Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay. Well, looks like your time's up, Marcia. <laughs> the big hand on the clock. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us next time when we return with more trivia here on the, the Off Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.